You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Good morning, guys. Morning. Or afternoon, I guess, John, huh? <laughs> what time is it where you're at? Uh, it's just past five. Oh, okay. So you moved recently. Yes. Um, are we recording? So should I like try and talk like really nice? <laughs> well, you don't need to talk nicely at all, but, um, um yeah. all right. So, um, yeah, around like when Corona hit, we kind of sat down and thought like, okay, we're stuck where we live now because of like, it was a bit of a lockdown and stuff. So we thought, do we actually like living here? We were like, not really. So we just moved. <laughs> um we like uh drove up to the romsdalen which is like a different area in norway it's like um seven eight hours north of where we were before uh with bigger steeper mountains better skiing and stuff uh we literally just like drove up here lived out the van for a couple of weeks and found out it was absolutely amazing so then drove back down shoved all our stuff in a van drove up here and rented a place here and sold our place in bergen so, um, yeah, we, uh, we use Corona as kind of like a moving time. That's crazy because I always got the sense that you lived in the perfect, like idyllic mountain town and suddenly you realize I just, I don't love it. And you found an even better one. No, I, it was, I mean, it is, it was a really nice place in Bergen, but the mountains, they were like, not small, but they were like kind of, you could go up and down a mountain in 45 minutes pretty easily. Um, so we'd done like pretty much mostly everything there that we could do. It was mostly like really nice trail running and like loads of it. But we kind of want to further our sort of like mountaineering alpinist type experience as well. And here we have loads of great trails, but also loads of like much steeper and bigger mountains. So better for skiing and also pushing the boundaries um, of like the knowledge we can build of technical mountaineering as well. Not to go down this track too early, but do you see yourself doing more of that in the future or is it more of a passion? Um, I think at the moment a passion because really I've made the majority of my money through obstacle rating and sponsorship money from skyrunning and mountain running, but I don't really see how I'd make the money through like mountaineering. So it's probably like running in nature is kind of a hobby and then the, the racing and obstacle racing is kind of more of the, the job, I guess. They kind of go hand in hand though, don't they? I mean, really? I mean, the training, if you train to be like a mountain runner and go climbing as well, you don't go too far wrong if you have some technique for obstacle racing. So um, I think there's certainly like being this all-round athlete can really, you can be rewarded within obstacle racing and mountain running. So. Uh, I've made a go at doing both of them and have been relatively successful. So, You're kind of known in the sport as the mountain running, I don't know if specialist is the word, but cer certainly the most successful mountain runner who also obstacle races. And I've known you since, I want to say like 2014, 20, right around in there somewhere. But 
I don't have a ton of knowledge prior to you. When you first came into the sport, at the top of the sport, we all stalked you, looked back at what you'd done, tried to see how you projected towards our sport. As, as you do with the new people that come in, we tried to get a feel for it. But I never got a great sense of your athletic development. So I, I'm curious as to when it started, because in the U.S., we all have the same path. We either played soccer, we ran track or cross country. And we got into OCR after college. Uh, we don't really know the the British version of how you become an obstacle racer. I think um, I, I didn't really have a path, but one just developed as I went. So yeah, like you said, I haven't had like this set path that most athletes go through, how they, they run at school and then they go to college and they kind of like follow the, the set road kind of. I just fell into it almost like uh, I, I played skater hockey when I was a kid so that was pretty good training it's sort of like ice hockey you get roughed up a bit uh, but it's on wheels uh, really fun probably really good cross training like good interval training but I didn't mm -hmm. have sort of like running pounding so it's also maybe a good thing that I wasn't getting these injuries and being pushed by a coach um, I was just like exercising so I enjoyed it and then I quit uh, hockey when I was 20 and had to ski. You played all the way through 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I played uh, like for a local club and at regional level and represented Great Britain once as well. Uh, went to Switzerland for the European Championships. Is that like a school sport? Like you can like you can be on like that team and that's like a because that doesn't exist here. Not even close. Yeah, it's definitely not a school sport in the UK. It's kind of more like a I don't know, it's like ice hockey is pretty tough because it's expensive to get ice time and ice time is cheapest at like two in the morning on a Saturday. So it's kind of like a tough sport. So ice hockey, like I love to play ice hockey. When I was coming out to Norway, I'd go and play outside ice hockey like on local ponds and rinks and stuff. But it was just a lot easier to play skate hockey where I grew up. So it was kind of like me and my brother would be playing hockey on the sort of outside the house and then found out it was actually sort of like, a, it is a sport, like properly organized, but also very small and niche. Hence why I could probably end up representing Britain. Um, and like I said, it was really good training. Like I, it was, I would push myself really hard. Like I was known as the workhorse. Like I would never give up. I'd be playing like on my knees and stuff and getting smashed around, but not giving up. And I guess uh, I took that sort of approach into running. So when, I did start running. It wasn't, it didn't never really like felt that hard for some reason. Like I think I built up a good engine, but obviously I needed the running stride and that's something that I sort of had quite naturally maybe. So um, at 20, I quit hockey and I needed to keep fit. So I started like running a bit. Um, had you not run really at all prior to that? I ran like cross country at school like once. I'd like run every now and then, played football in the school. What do you mean you ran cross country once? Like you showed up to practice and did it once and then you're like, not for me or what? It wasn't really like a practice thing. And in the UK, you kind of have sports day and it's kind of like everyone, like the, your class has to nominate two people to run. So I was like, oh, we'll just have John run. So that was <laughs> <laughs> Did you, were you successful or did you not show any proclivity there? Ah, I, I, I never found it like that hard, but I didn't like set any records or win anything great or anything. I just sort of like, yeah, went and went and ran. I, I really enjoyed playing hockey. Uh, so I enjoyed exercising, but running was just kind of like, yeah, I was never like pushed down that, down that road kind of. 
Um, so that meant when I did start running, I really discovered like a massive love for it. And I only did it because I love to do it and I love to get out. There was no coach. There was no parents telling me to go running. It was just, I really enjoyed running. So I went out and did it. So I think there was a really natural progression that, I mean, obviously if I'm really banged up from running the day before, I don't want to run the next day. So I would take a day off and I would like follow this. Oh, I really want to run again. So go out running and just slowly ran more and more and more. Um, and then events started to happen. So I actually think the first running event I did was my sister entered me in for a half marathon. Um, I did like five or six weeks of training towards that, which was like three runs a week, maybe normally about 5K. But I used to have this like route along this disused railway. And like it was, I think it was like 17K. And I used to think, no one's ever run this far like i am <laughs> i ran so far today and i did that like three or four times and then did this half marathon um which is like really really fun and stuff and i remember people talking about a four minute kilometer average being like pretty solid um i don't know what what you'd work that into miles as being but it's like a 40 minute 10k and i hit that pretty pretty comfortably in the half marathon, but I did puke in the last like 3K. So I could, I could run that fast without too many issues kind of, it felt quite natural. Um, and then this uh, newspaper article was had like a little thing about tough guy. And I was like, oh, that sounds crazy. Like I've never really done anything that crazy with my life. Uh, you get to like test if you're a man and you get to jump over fire and crawl under barbed wire through ice and stuff and freeze your bollocks off. So um, that was my crazy thing. I wanted to go and do tough guy. So I entered in. Um, I did a few more 5K runs and like jumped in a wheelie bin full of cold water, um, did a few pull-ups and stuff. And then when I did tough guy and I absolutely froze like my bollocks off, it was like it was ridiculously tough. Uh, but I got through and I remember my dad like I was like so hypothermic trying to warm up afterwards like my body was just cramping on its own and then would release and then cramp again and stuff and I was trying to hold this cup of tea and my dad was going yeah you never have to do this again like that's, that's <laughs> yourself. I think you never have to do one of these things again um, but six months later like another one came up and it was probably like the first non-tough guy obstacle race in the UK and I entered into that and then Tough Guy put, um, Spartan popped up and I did a Spartan. And then I started winning these things. And obviously, it's fun to win stuff. So I started doing more. And I'd always think, oh, I'm only really winning because no one else is doing them. Um, but then I won like quite a bunch more and got into like mountain running and trail running and stuff and run, won a few of those. And then um, moved to Norway. And I got invited to come out to the Spartan World Champs, which was in 2014, when we first um, met, I guess. And I thought, well, okay, I've just moved to Norway. I can't get a job because I don't speak Norwegian. I'll just train like a full-time athlete for like four or five weeks and not have a job. Um, so I did that and absolutely destroyed myself. Like, I think I was like so overtrained, but somehow got really good shape and went out to the Spartan World Champs and won that as well. Um, so then when three weeks later I went and won the OCR World Champs as well, I kind of sat down and thought, maybe I am, like, all right at this obstacle racing um, thing. So then uh, my wife said, well, why don't you just, like, you can't get a job, so why don't you just try and run? So I've been, like, running since. 
Um, <laughs> they've been six years now uh, being a full-time athlete. So it's like this sort of like wave that I've just ridden following it along. I never made any active decisions to become an athlete or to become a runner or to do obstacle racing. It just kind of happened on its own, which was really like natural. And it just felt right because I ended up uh, like where I'm meant to be maybe rather than trying to force it all the time. Um, but obviously I've learned like a hell of a lot since then. It's not been butterflies and rainbows the whole way. Um, but I, I certainly came from obstacle racing was kind of like my background. Uh, yeah. Then I became a mountain runner and trail runner, uh, which is kind of what I'm known for within obstacle racing. So it's kind of funny. It is. We, we had this conversation with uh, VJ Jones a few weeks back about there just isn't yet. We're, we're just starting to see the generation of people growing up obstacle racing, but it never existed prior to that. We all had some background and we knew how good of a runner we were. And then we came into the sport and we kind of knew where we stood. And it hit me the other day that we actually do have one person that grew up obstacle racing in a sense. <laughs> and it was you because you didn't run until just <laughs> prior. And that's, it's a bizarre path to take to step in thinking, all right, I, I did okay in this half marathon. I did well at this. I won a world championship. Maybe I'm good at this where the rest of us all knew how good we were as a runner first. It, your progression has been bizarre because now you're truly representing Great Britain at, you know, world mountain championships and sky running championships and all of that. At what point did you just realize this is what I was meant to be doing my entire life? Oh, I don't know if I ever like have really sat down and thought like this is this is me, but maybe I guess when um, when all the events got cancelled because of Corona, suddenly I I was like, there's a massive hole in my life. Like, who am I? It, without mm -hmm. racing, like my half my personality has just disappeared. So without me really realizing racing and being an athlete has become so intertwined with who I am. Uh, it's kind of strange when that sort of side of you gets taken away. So it was definitely, yeah, it was nothing like I've never had this sort of like pinnacle, uh, sort of like magical moment until maybe the whole racing thing was was taken away. You you said that you weren't sure about how good you were because it was a niche sport, and that's true. It is a niche sport. But when we first saw you at Spartan Race World Championships in 2013 at Killian uh, in Killington, Vermont. I was running with James Appleton somewhere in eighth or ninth place coming down the mountain. We were both struggling and Joe DeSena stopped us, not stopped us, but came up beside. He said, James, one of your boys is winning. He said, I told you he would. And so they knew who you were coming in and we didn't know, but then we looked you up right afterwards and you had an innovate sponsorship and you had other things already. So had that come together relatively quickly or are you kind of underplaying how good you had become before you came over? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I'd won like pretty much every single obstacle race I'd ever entered, except for tough guy being the first one and like removing races where like someone won from the last wave or something, which was blatantly like not quite legitimate and stuff. So I pretty much won all the obstacle races I'd, I'd done, uh, and never had to push like amazingly hard to do it. So I guess from that, uh, I would think that I was quite good. But then I remember sitting and watching videos of people like Hobie and Hunter and being like, oh, I wonder if I could beat them. Right. Uh, so obviously, like, it, it is, like, hard because, especially in the U.S., 
there's such stories made about people and media really hypes people up. So it was kind of funny that I just like never really had that side of things. But yeah, I did, I was sponsored by Innovate and I did have some other sponsors, uh, but I was so nervous about getting sponsorships that when um, I got in touch with Innovate, I got like a bunch of my friends that we all raced. So we all got sponsored by Innovate together as being Team Innovate because I was so like worried about having do things for them or how being a sponsored athlete works and stuff so it's nice that i kind of like could include sort of like some friends in the in the process and we all got sponsored together so it was a really fun time of my life and it really did sort of like prepare me for being a full-time athlete did you did you realize how big of a deal winning that first spartan world championship was like i know you have much more perspective now on how hard that race is to win were you able to absorb like the gravity of that win in the moment or no? Uh, I don't know. Like, I'd won loads of other races before. So for me, it was just like winning another one. But there was something that felt relatively special. I think the main thing that made that winning that big for me was the fact I never managed to win it again. But then also it got moved to Tahoe to elevation. I raced really poorly elevation like the next year. So the race completely changed after that year. It was a lot shorter, or a lot quicker at least, a lot mm -hmm. more gnarly, a, a little bit less sort of pure obstacle racing, a little bit more of like TV sport type obstacle racing. So not being able to win it again really ended up making me think that was a bigger deal. And also having a lot of people, especially in the US, saying that was a fluke with me winning it the first time. Um, well, yeah. That's a conversation I actually want to have with you because I know where you're going with this bracket too, but we we live in the midwest in uh in the u.s here and we have no mountains i live at like 600 feet above sea level similar to you right you're close to sea level i believe uh like i can see yeah. you can see the sea so you're you're at sea level um and man this conversation happens all the time about like quit your whining about coming to the mountains and racing at altitude and we talk about not being able to really access your fitness and you basically like when you go to elevation, you just hang on for dear life till the finish line. If you don't live and acclimate, y you can speak, uh, uh, I think, from a higher level performance than we can. That's true. Correct, John? Like you go to elevation and it is a suffer fest. It is ridiculously screwed up when you go from sea level to racing elevation. Like You can tell even in the days before you just feel horrible walking up the stairs is like <gasps> and then like i can imagine with a sport where you can start and then you can push and eke out the power like every minute a little bit more power goes out yeah it's pretty bad and you can sort of like measure how much less performance you have but in obstacle racing you like smash the first kilometer as fast as you can. You go up a mountain for like 45 minutes. Every time you hit an obstacle, your heart rate jacks like a mother. And then it never comes down again because you don't recover at elevation. So even in like a normal sport, I think racing elevation is, is absolutely disgusting. But obstacle racing is like just a whole nother level because the your heart rate and your effort level is just so screwed up everywhere. And then add in 30 burpees at 2,500 meters and it's like, it's a completely different ball game. It is, it is ridiculous. Like if I, 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 like it's a ballsy thing to say, but if Spartan World Champs had been at lower elevations over the last four or five years, I'm sure I would have done far better than I have done in the last four or five years. Well, we've talked, and you come up in the U.S. a lot in conversations. People always want to talk about who's the greatest. People are obsessed with 
identifying who the greatest in a sport is. And it's very difficult to ever say, but oftentimes in the US, you're left off that list. And I, I believe, we believe <laughs> that you're punished for not living in the US because people don't see you enough. <laughs> the only time they see you is at OCR Worlds and they say, oh, that's European style racing. It doesn't count. Or they see you at <laughs> altitude or with double sandbag carries. And they get this yeah. kind of skewed perception of who you actually are. And you're right. If Tahoe's not the world championship, almost any other course in the US, I think that you're a three, four, five time world champ, as you've shown with others. But for some reason, we have this misconception that you're you're a lesser OCR athlete because Tahoe. Yeah, I, pos I mean, I, I can only agree to a certain extent, at least, that Americans don't really like our non-Americans winning races or being classed as being really good. And obstacle racing is is not an American sport, like Spartan racing is. And yet we think it is. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. And do you think do you think obstacle racing and Spartan racing are completely different beasts? Uh, they, yeah, they're completely different. Can you even categorize them together? Yeah, I mean, uh, Spartan race is a form of obstacle racing. And obstacle racing, there's a lot of different ways to define what it is. But a lot of those definitions don't really fit in to what a Spartan race is. Like the always having things a bit random and different is kind of gone away now with Spartan racing because the obstacle the obstacles are pretty standardized. The distances are now standardized as well. Um, having burpees is just like it's just it's an exercise. It's weird. Like I don't understand. We have a lot of tasks rather than obstacles. Yeah, I guess so. It's kind of like it's it's certainly a type of obstacle race but for me obstacle racing there's a whole nother side of it which spawn racing doesn't really satisfy um but i know to be a class of good obstacle racer in the us you have to be a good spawn racer um and that means the biggest difference is i think for obstacle racing you shouldn't really be able to train very specifically for one type of race so for me i should be able to do any sort of monkey bar Whereas I know some Spartan racers will run up and be like, what the hell? This monkey bar is completely different to normal. Like the one at home that I built to standard is, is different. To this. I can't do this. And to me, that's just like, it's a monkey bar. You just do it. Like, it's, and that's something that Spartan racing has kind of lost, I guess. Because, yeah, I mean, uh, Spartan racing is trying to make obstacle racing into a proper sport. Trying to like talk about things like the Olympics and stuff. And whenever that happens... You've got to talk about people spectating. And then whenever a sport goes from something pure to a spectator sport, you're just going to sort of like lose the magic or the best bits about it. And obstacle racing is in kind of that process. So I can see why Spartan racing is great for obstacle racing, but then I also don't want obstacle racing to be defined by Spartan. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a very good point. Your, I want to get to your mountain success, your pure running successes next, because on this podcast, we have a probably equal amount of listeners that are just runners and just obstacle racers. But before we do get there, I want to preface by saying, I think your mountain running pedigree has started to change the way people think of you in the US about your Spartan racing, your obstacle racing. They think, well, he's a great runner, but he struggles with, you know, he's not a great op. I hear this all the time. He's not great at obstacles. <laughs> and and the reality is that I don't believe you've ever lost more than maybe one or two actual obstacle races. I think of all the losses I've ever seen you have, they've all either had altitude 
and a Spartan race at the same time or a double sandbag carry. I think outside of maybe one stadium and the Spartan cruise, I don't think you've lost a non-altitude, non-double sandbag race. And I think you're kind of a victim, A, of not living here, but B, of being good at something outside of obstacle racing that it somehow confuses people that you're not an obstacle racer at heart. Yeah, um, like I guess that's sort of similar to what we just touched on with the obstacle thing. But like when it comes to actual obstacles, like uh, I would have thought many, many US races, if they came to Europe and could see some of the obstacles that our obstacle racing is developing here, they'd be like completely shocked. And it, here it's almost going the other way. Like in the US, it's going more kind of let's go towards CrossFit. And in uh, Europe, it's like more towards like Ninja Warrior and freaking swinging around and like crimping onto stuff that moves and using random like apparatus where you have to like go along and then like throw them on the ground or put them in a basket or something. So it's like developed completely different on both continents. And I've managed to do relatively well in both. So there's not that many US races which will come over to Europe and absolutely smash everything um, because it's like a completely different style. And it's the same when Europeans go over to uh, the US. Um, it's like a completely different style there. But then I guess it did also show that maybe even just the travel has a big role to play. Say, for instance, with the trifecta world champs in Greece, uh, there wasn't a US guy on the podium, I think, at least on the male side, whereas... Uh, switch that around in Tahoe, like there's hardly any Europeans in the top 20. Yeah. Mm. Well, we certainly get good at the things that we're surrounded by, <laughs> but we have certain people who are considered obstacle specialists and they've come over from for some OCR world championships and they've not made a podium. So I think it just shows that someone comes to the US and misses a podium or doesn't win worlds. And we say, well, they're not a great obstacle racer. And we go over there and hit an obstacle race and it's we're exposed and we say, well, that's not true obstacle racing. <laughs> kind of a double standard that we have. I mean, how do you define obstacle racing? It's such a random thing. And that's like what is great about obstacle racing. Um, so it's it's just like, it's, it's it's just one of those things. Like the, the randomness about obstacle racing is one of its great greatest traits. So it's really hard to be really good at all different types, I guess. John, if you had to, if you had to pick one, like, I want to know what has your heart, obstacle course racing, sky running, or trail racing in general. You got to pick one. You have no option but one. Where does your heart lie? Like, I would have thought probably, like, obstacle racing is really painful for, like, one reason. Like, it's absolutely horrible. Like, especially Spartan World uh, at elevation is, like, getting dragged to, like, a bush backwards and someone, like, hitting you on the head and, like, it's like, it's really horrible, uh, but then guy running while, be, while being suffocated. Yeah, it's it's it's, uh, it's like horrible, but then the training for it is. I I think I really love to run in nature, just to be up there on a ridge, running along in my own little world, like crushing it and like seeing like waterfalls and cool like sunsets and stuff. Like I guess that's where my heart is. I love just to be out there, kind of like alone. And sky running as a sport is probably the closest you're going to get to that. And then also having the added like technicality and the scrambling and the sort of like little bit of exposure and stuff is pretty cool. So I guess like a simple answer would be maybe sky running, but then obstacle racing has got its own sort of like special stuff as well. It's just this, it's a different sort of pain and the pain in sky running I can kind of manage because it's just like 
one or two types of pain when in obstacle racing you have those pains and you have like a shit ton more and like especially like back in the day like the amount of brambles and stinging nettles and just getting cut up like crawling on gravel and your legs are shredded like i can remember when i worked in london going to the office and my trousers were literally stuck to my legs and i'd be there like peeling off my trousers like that it's hard to really in, and we were getting hypothermia because most of these races are in the winter as well like it's hard to really say like it's really fun doing that but you learn a lot from the experience and you become like a better person because of it maybe so but the actual experience i would have thought like being up in the mountains and running on a ridge is probably like more actually enjoyable <laughs> we have um we have this conversation i feel like in obstacle course racing like longer is longer is better in quotes and longer is harder um I want you to tell the people, do you think like the 3K at OCR Worlds is as painful as the 15K, for example? Or, I mean, how would you describe the difference? Because this debate comes up all the freaking time. Like people won't travel to go run a sprint Spartan race because I'm only going to run like for an hour. That's not worth my time. Tell the, I mean, people are wrong. Yeah. It's like people, they say like a 400 meter race. Oh, it's not that bad. It's just, but it's going to be like, so painful for a short amount of time whereas a 24-hour race is like relatively painful for a long time so it really depends on where you want to sit on the scale but most people are like oh that wasn't that hard it's like well why didn't you just run faster then uh, and that's like the same thing you make it as painful as you want it to be usually um because it's just like it's what is what you make it into which is going to sort of like make it painful i can understand like traveling really far for a sprint you get a lot less for your money, I guess. Um, but I mean, 3K at OCR Worlds is like, it's horrible. Like you're seeing black and red for pretty much all of it. You have this like lactic acid feeling in your throat. You just want the world to like end. Whereas 15K is slightly less painful, but then a hell of a lot like longer, I guess. And then 24 hour at like World's Toughest Mother is like that one on steroids. There's like a whole different type of pain you're exposed to. So. It's fun to be able to try and perform at all of them. It's hard to say which one is more painful. Uh, you hide it well. Bracken, I don't know about you. I know you had watched the Spartan World Champs as a spectator last year, but other than how you described the look on John's face during the double sandbag, <laughs> I I don't think you, you – we've been talking about pain, and I feel like you're cool as a cucumber out there, man. Like I look at your face and you are relaxed and you are chill. You just good at hiding it. You got a poker face or what? Maybe I, I learned pretty early on that a good smile can give you endorphins and make everything seem a bit better and helps you along. So if I'm smiling, you know, I'm having a good race and I'm going to do well. And if I'm not, uh, it, things aren't probably going to go that well. But I do remember last year at Spartan Worlds ever, uh, after the climb, really, uh, it was the first time running in sort of like around minus degrees for me that year. And obviously being at altitude, trying to get in as much air as possible. And I got this like weird breathing thing. So it's like, <gasps> and I just couldn't get like oxygen into my lungs. I pretty much had that for the entire race. So I, I don't know how I could possibly have looked cool as a cucumber because I was actually struggling to get oxygen in. <laughs> like it was... It was pretty disgusting. <laughs> and then to go in the cold water with that, like unable to actually fill your lungs, then go into the cold water. It was like, Bleh. actually that cold water swim kind of 
because I do breaststroke and kind of relax a bit on the swim, gave me a chance to try and calm myself down and then regroup. And it was from that point I made my way from like sixth, seventh up into third. Um, but yeah, that no, was horrible. Now, you're, this isn't something I intended to talk about, but you'd say in breaststroke brought this up. When we were in the Bahamas racing yeah. for the Spartan Cruise, now you should have won that race. I did run wrong, yeah. <laughs> you, well, three people ran wrong and yeah. two people cut across to the course and you backtracked like you were supposed to. So you went from first to whatever, but that that's an aside. Anyways, <laughs> so that's another loss on U.S. soil that should have been a win. <laughs> I, I shadowed you for a lot of that race. And what I what blew my mind is we how many times do you think we swam in that race? Six or seven? Lots. Like it was in out, in out, in out. But yeah. the there was nice. It was very warm, but we all would get in and we'd front crawl, we'd smash ourselves. And I looked to the side at one point and you were side stroking, just watching us. Yeah. And you were not going any slower. Is that something you practice? Or is that just what comes naturally to you? Uh, I think I'm generally a poor swimmer, but then I have found in racing, especially when the water's cold, like the most important thing is to not gas yourself and to actually go in the right direction. And that's true. (laughs) Most people really struggle. Like you take the best runner in the world, you make them run through a river or swim 10 meters and they run like shit afterwards. And I think one of the best ways to try and run better after the swim, which is where you're going to make up most time, is relaxing in the swim and getting enough oxygen in and sort of like taking stock of how the race is going and stuff. So I've always been a breaststroker. And like, I, I, I don't think like the, the longest swim we have in obstacle race is like 20, 30 meters. And okay, yeah, maybe you lose like five seconds, but the gains you can make on the running afterwards are absolutely massive. But I've got a really funny memory from that first Spartan World Champs um, of, I've forgotten the name of, the guy that can hurd- hurdled the hurdles. Oh, John Yatsko. Yeah. He started the race with goggles and a swimming hat on. And I was, <laughs> like, never raced in the US before, never done a big race like this before. And I was like, crap, I forgot my goggles. Like, this. <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm never going to be able to finish this race now. And actually, in the swim, I swam and overtook him doing breaststroke as he was there crawling away. And I was going, oh. No, not that smart. No, that's funny. <laughs> I, I actually talked to him about that. He was concerned. He got cold headaches and disoriented from cold water. So he thought, I'm just keeping all water off my <laughs> head, ears, and eyes. But he ended up not having a great race anyways. It is funny. The obstacle racing, it does really find, A, what you're scared of or it's meant to. Like, it exposes you to fears. But then also just everyone's got some weakness. And mm-hmm. that comes to to show and like it's a, it's amazing how many athletes do struggle in the water and actually even like scared of swimming uh but it's kind of like it is a human skill that you're meant to be able to to do really i mean it's like swimming is like part of being a, a human i think so i think especially when there's conversations about removing all swimming from obstacle races i'm like why like it's just something that should be tested and the ability to run well after you've been in water is also like really really important yeah, John, I want to I want to go back um, to your background for one reason. I, I was a track athlete in college. I was an All-American. Bracken was a track athlete. I believe you were an All-American, right? In the DMR, Bracken. I need to rationalize why you're so damn good based on your background, right? Like somehow I need to wrap my mind around the fact that you 
you're you're kind of like a cool describer of your upbringing. Like, oh, I just fell into this, and then I fell into that, and suddenly I'm a world champion. And and I just need to understand. Like, you talk about how, how did you describe the roller hockey you played? What do you call it? Uh, well, it's the exact same as ice hockey, but you're wearing roller skates and you use a ball, or you maybe use a pup, use a ball. What is it called? Skater hockey or roller hockey. So it's street hockey. Like you wear the same kit as ice hockey, but you have wheels on your, your blades instead of uh, ice blades or whatever they call. Uh, so okay. the same contact, you still get smashed up. Uh, you still have these little goals with these goalies that wear the same kit as in ice hockey. It's just all in a sports hall, so it's a lot cheaper to go and do. Um, but it's really, really warm in the summer in these sports halls, and you're wearing a lot of kit. You get like smashed up, and it's like on the pitch – Go as hard as you can for like a minute, 32 minutes off the pitch, rest for like a minute, minute and a half, two minutes, while some other guys are out there playing and then back on again for like 45 minutes. So it's almost kind of like a cross-training interval session, I guess. And I would push myself like really hard. Like I said, I was the workhorse. So I think that was building like a good base for uh, like exercising, I guess, like a big aerobic capacity. And then with in obstacle racing, a lot of people wonder how I can carry shit and move shit. And when I was at school, I, I worked in FedEx, like two nights a week moving boxes. Uh, so I'd move a lot of boxes and I'd be like paired up with these big Polish dudes, which are like moving like thousands an hour. So there was me doing it as well. But because it was only two nights a week, I didn't really screw myself over too much. I managed to recover until I went back to work. And it was, yeah, it was really fun. Like I had one of the best scanning rates in the world, I think, for scanning and moving boxes. <laughs> uh, that was kind of where the strength um, moving stuff came in. Uh, and then I just stayed ahead of the curve, I guess, because I started obstacle racing relatively early. As obstacle racing developed, I kind of developed with it. So I can remember going bouldering for the first time, thinking, oh, this is fun. I'm going to go bouldering more. About two years later, the first really hard, grip strength type obstacles came out and I was like, oh, I'm already bouldering. This is fine. So I've kind of just managed to somehow have these random things where I've managed to train for this random sport and be be good at it. It wasn't until I started becoming like a full-time athlete that I started injuring myself and like screwing myself over because suddenly I didn't have a day job that limited me and I didn't really know what the hell how a full-time athlete like trains. So I had to go back to basics and try and learn like how I was meant to train. So it's really been like like the whole process just turned on its on its head. I got kind of good and then I had to try and learn how to get good. So growing up though, like you exclusively played hockey, like as far as sport, like you went to bed and thought about playing the next day and then you woke up and it's like you were like single track minded or was there other aspects of your fitness or like all of your aerobic development came from playing roller hockey? Yeah. Like every now and then I'd maybe go for a run, but not, not really. Like it was literally hockey. And then when tough guy, uh, I entered into that, it was like, I knew about this like 5k loop that went over some fields and there was a river that you could cross and a bridge. And I'd always just go through the river because that kind of made most sense. Uh, and then like loop back and come back home and then that was it so I started doing this like 5k this 5k loop and I bought like a pair of like really grippy shoes because it was like really slippery mud and stuff and then just ran this loop a few times and did a few longer runs and stuff and then um yeah but I've got like because uh, because I haven't like had this structure it's almost better because 
I've just like learned as I've gone and not had someone that's taken away the love of it, I guess. And also I haven't got like, I never had shin splints as, until I turned 25 or something. And that would be great, like growing up and actually just having a body that hasn't been pounded on a track. But then it also means I'm never going to get the sort of speeds like you guys have had. Like I'm never going to be able to say my PB 5K is like 13, 50 or something because I'm just not going to get there now unless I really specify and also I'm probably a bit old as well so I've kind of like foregone that kind of like PB era of my life but then I don't really see it as being that fun because there's always going to come a day when you're not going to manage manage that PB and it's like more fun to do this random stuff that you can't really look back on and compare yourself to because that way you can just always look at the the bright side even if you didn't run as well maybe that's an interesting point to make. And also, you do have some decently quick times you've put up. Like we have some, anyone who's run faster than 225 in a marathon over here, we consider that one of the faster distance endurance guys in the sport. But I think you debuted at like 226 on a very hilly road marathon, right? Yeah, I had done a London marathon a few twice before, but that was okay. more like I mean, one of them, I didn't, I wasn't even entered. A friend just gave me a number and I really cheekily like ran. And I would just run with him because he didn't want me to overlap his PB kind of. Uh, he had two entries. Uh, but then on the start line, he said he couldn't get me timing chips. So I, I was asking people for gels on the start line and managed to get some gels. So I only knew I was going to try and run fast at 20 minutes before the race. So I'd done like, I'd done the marathon like twice before, maybe yeah, twice before. But then when Bergen came up, like um, I used it as like to train towards that uh, marathon so then I could have good speed for the rest of the year. So it's sort of like the first race of the year kind of thing. And yeah, it climbs 500 meters in the, the 42K. So that's like climbing 1,500 feet over the 26 miles. Uh, yeah, I did like 2.26.02 or something. So I was like pretty happy. But then I was running along thinking, I'm going to look back on this day and think, wow, I was fun. And it's, it's true. I've never run like as quick since, but then I've never really tried because it's not that fun for me to, to really specify my training towards like a goal like that because right. I to follow the weather with my training and I want to experience different sports and I want to go do different stuff. So you're never really going to manage to get all your training so controlled that you don't screw yourself over in some some way, shape, or form. Because, uh, I mean, with that sort of thing, a lot of it comes down to resting and being rested enough for the sessions. And if you really, really want to go skiing, you ain't going to be rested for your intervals the next day, are you? So. You're right. Well, I think that shows two things. The first is that the speed's there, like you said. Could you dedicate time and go get some PBs? Yeah. But it's it's obviously not exciting to you to do that. But the fact of the matter is that the engine's there. And the second, it it really shows, one of the things we talk about a lot is that uphill training pairs well to flat running with a little bit of skill work to tie them together. You clearly proved that. You had an engine that, from what I saw, you did a little bit of track sessions to prep for the marathon, but you didn't do anything crazy. No, I mean, I, I think if, the problem is when you when you kind of don't keep your legs like track ready the entire year, like you, you just end up destroying yourself. So you have to be so, so careful to not get injuries and stuff that it turns into just like just doing just doing enough um but i mean i have struggled with an injury over the last four or five years which has sort of like affected my training like absolutely massively and um it would be interesting to see 
if I could have run bigger mileage over the last years, but the truth is I've just never been able to because of the injury. And what is that? Um, so four and a half years ago, I was doing uh, – a, a friend entered me in for a swim run uh, in the Lake District, and then the next day I was just going to be driving home with my wife, and we saw these people running around with, like, race numbers on. So I was like, what is a, is a race? And it turned out to be, like, this really – traditionally famous uh, fell race up this mountain and down again. So I was yeah. like, oh, the start's in like two hours because we spoke to some guy. I went and bought the kit you needed, like a map and compass and stuff. Um, and then found out that it was the trials to run for England. So it was like, uh, yeah, like a trial race for uphill running. So a lot of people were only going to run up, stop, and then the people that want to do the full race will run up and down. So I was like, wow, this is great. Like, the best people in England are here. And I was obviously living in Norway, so no one really knew who I was. So uh, I ran up, and I was first at the top, and then turned my arm down. <laughs> like six or seven people all stopped at the top because they were doing the trials. And then the next person was Ricky Lightfoot, and he turned around and ran down as well. So I finished. Um, was like, wow, that was like great. Like I ran really fast. But they made us run on like this gravel path with like a lot of like golf all size hard stones. And I'd worn like pretty minimalist, really grippy shoes. So I got some pain under my big toe uh, and then never managed to get rid of this, this pain. So it was never that bad that I couldn't walk, but it was always like sore. And I knew the, the more I ran, the more sore it would get. So it's always been in the back of my mind that I can't run that much because my foot hurts. So I started doing a lot more skiing in the winter and then just trying to run just enough to have good running shape, get through the summer running season and then ski again. And I managed like that for four years. That's a long time to deal with it. Yeah, this uh, has always been like this niggly thing in my head. Like it's always my toe. Like a lot of people I've spoken to, I've always spoken about my, my toe. Uh, so it's always been like a thing, but I don't want to say that it affected me that much because I could run. Uh, it would just it would just hurt like afterwards a little bit during, but not enough to like really, really like limit me actually running then and there. But there was no way I could run 160k weeks for like three four months in a row. Um, this spring, and would that be normal for you? 160k weeks is good volume. No, I've never really done that before, but I know that that's sort of like 100 mile weeks is sort of like a baseline if you want to be a good runner. That's kind of like a thing. And then for me to do it, especially with the amount of mountain running I do, would be like pretty difficult. So I've gone to more measuring how much climb I do, especially with the skiing. So in the winter, I know how what is a good climb week compared to a bad one, kind of. So I've gone down that climb and time on feet rather than mileage. Yeah, exactly. So like um, most winters between 10 to 15,000 meters of climb uh, is like Ooh. it's like average for in the, in the winter weeks. Uh, so I wasn't doing this running mileage. So this spring, it was even worse. I had a lot more pain actually in the middle of the foot, like more like plantar fasciitis type pain, not just under the big, big toe. So I got some scans done. I went to see some specialists. And it turns out I had two broken sesamoid bones, which are the two bones that like lie just under the, the pad of your big toe in your foot. Kind of. I, I had a stress fracture in those two years ago. Yeah, I feel your pain there. So uh, I've been running around with like two broken little bones in my, in my foot for like four four years. Uh, <laughs> so we, we went backwards and forwards with what I can do. And like he pretty much said that, the chances of them healing on their own now is like pretty slim because you've had it for so long. Uh, and with Corona and stuff, it was like 
what to do. There's no races. So I had an operation three and a half uh, months ago. Did you get them removed? No. So he, he said uh, you can get them removed or we can do bone grafting. And for your athletic career, probably bone grafting is the way to go, but it's a slightly slower recovery process. And then also you have the option then to remove them later on if it's still a problem. So um, he wasn't going to make the decision until he went in. He went in, he found like, uh, yeah, both of them were broken. Uh, there was kind of like a cartilage layer on top, but they kind of did flex a little bit. So there was movement there. So they weren't really going to heal. So he did some bone grafting. He drilled some holes and he cut like a bunch of angry tissue away from the joint. Um, so then since then, it, I've been trying to learn to run again. So I've uh, today was the day that I did 20 minutes running straight out without break uh, for the first time. Congratulations. Oh, yeah, thank you. I'm I'm fresh off two surgeries this year as well, yeah. using Corona to get over it. So yeah, no, that first twenty minute run is massive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's like there's two types of people: the people that are like, "Oh crap, now I can actually relax and sort myself out," and the other people which are like, well, "Everything, everything," uh, and FKT. Everything. So I think like I'm definitely in the sort myself out category. All three of us are. How come we haven't heard about this on social media, John? You just seem, you're not you're not an excuse maker. I'm I'm understanding. I, I I've got a weird relationship with social media. I, I can't. I, I look at it a lot. But I don't post a lot, but most of it I read through, and I'm like, this person's just trying to act like Gandhi, or this person's trying to act like Jesus, or I know this person, and that's just like not true. Like there's so much bullshit on social media, so it's just like I don't really like to partake, but I do like following along with people's lives. And I like how you can be really inspired to go and do adventures and you can go and make yourself fit and stuff. So part of me wants to post more, but then also I'm just like a lazy person. So I just don't post that much. Yeah, you seem super lazy to me. <laughs> yeah, frankly, I, I like to run. I do like Strava because Strava is data driven. So people can go on and they can see what I do. And if they're interested, they can drive down into the data and there's no lines, no bullshit. It's just, this is what I did go and have a look at it. So I do still post on, on Strava, but I don't even bother changing the names of runs. Like if someone wants to see the intervals I did and my heart rate, it's there, click on it and you can go and go and see. So like, I've got a strange relationship with social media. It's something that I should like try and improve because it would be good for sponsorship and money side. And it is fun to like try and inspire other people. It's just, it's just like one of those things. I'm just not a social media money. You're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> I'm terrible at social media. In fact, our last episode, Kirk and I just noticed what was my trend. All my sponsors have dropped me in the last two years. <laughs> I don't post on social media. <laughs> that might be part of it. I don't know. I, I was more. I was more curious. Just I, I don't know. Like people like to follow athletes' chronicles, their journeys, right? And and some people outline every day of their training on social media, and they outline their trials and tribulations, their victories and defeats. Um, here we are looking at a what are you like a ten time world champ, give or take, in different races. And here we are, I have no idea you have foot surgery, have no idea you've been struggling with this, have no idea that a twenty minute run is a big deal for you right now. We're thinking like John Alvin probably be winning everything if we were racing. It's just interesting to hear that you haven't shared that with people. Uh, we, you know, humble maybe. I don't know. No, I think like the, it probably is there that people would know if they looked hard enough. But it's like part of me feels like it's my life. Like I just like living it, and it's just like I like being really quiet in Norway, going out training, enjoy running in the mountains, and that's just what I love to do. 
I don't, I'm not really this sort of like shout about myself all the time. What I have tried to do is like try and prove myself through performance, which has obviously worked and I've made a name for myself that way. But obviously I have lost out a lot on the not boasting about myself so much side side of things. But like I have got a blog and I have, I've blogged all the way from like way back, probably like tough guy, like when I did the death race and stuff, like it is there. I think most of the photos have disappeared for some reason. But like there is some interesting like crap in there. Like I've done some weird, some weird stuff over the years. I read that from time to time, actually. Yeah, I mean, but my writing probably has improved. It's not like my strong point. Like, I'm a runner. Like I like to go and run. So like to to sit down and make a story out of everything, it's like oh, it just sounds like a lot of effort. Like I've got the time to do it. I'm a full time athlete with no races, uh, but I just can't really be bothered. <laughs> like with sponsors, I could be great for sponsors to have more social media because it's like very much now that's how you get the word about good products. But I don't even think of my sponsors being sponsors. They're just people that are supporting my journey. And they're the only reason I'm with those companies is because they make the best stuff and I've tried to help them to make better stuff. So they're not really like sponsoring me. It's like we're working together to try and make better stuff so people can get out in the mountains and do exercising and do it for longer or faster or like better. You know, the irony is that even though this is the social media age, the people who have the most sponsors are the people with the most stressful lives I know. Yeah. And also the of all the athletes I know, I think you are more closely tied in visual recognition to your sponsors. When you think VJ Shoes, you think John Elbin. And when you think Gore, you think John Elbin. And you post less than any other top 20 athlete in any sport in the world. And yet you are so closely tied to it because it's very obvious that you live your life tied with those two products and everybody knows that. And so you don't have to shout it. And ever, like you've been with Cliff for years and I know that, and I don't know if I've ever seen you post about Cliff. I just know that you wear the logo when you race and you always consume them. Yeah. And that's just what we know. When I raced, I was with Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, um, so it was, it was a great journey with Cliff and I, I, I like love Cliff Bars and I love like the whole ethos of the company and stuff but then it's true that like I really love the, the products for training but for racing I'd always be using other nutrition stuff because mm. there are the fast racing like the shot blocks are great but I can't eat them when I'm running at 2,500 meters in Tahoe breathing like <laughs> mm. the gels are like toothpaste and stuff so they're really good for long slow activities but I wanted to be honest with people with what I use when I race. So, um, yeah, I switched to Mountain Fuel, which is like a tiny little nutrition company from the, the UK, and they make really good stuff, and, like, the, the products are amazing. Like the, the, Did you say Morton? Mountain Fuel. Mountain? Yeah, Mountain Fuel. It's like the, the energy drink is literally, like, it's, it's ridiculous. You try it on a, on a, on a like, threshold training session it's like crazy it's like there's got to be something in it i don't know <laughs> it's uh, it's really good <laughs> so, um yeah i'm with them this year and obviously like i could like talk about it a lot more but just like part of me thinks that people should just ask me like if they if they want to know what what gel to use or they want like a nutrition plan just freaking message me and if they want that much right. information pay me and then i'll coach them and i'll tell them tell them what works at least for me but ultimately it comes down to what works for for you so, so with, with your love of outdoors and your racing is your freedom and all that stuff, 
what what has rehab looked like for you coming off of you know fusing of two bones in your foot uh yeah like well the first week was laying on a couch with my leg up um so that wasn't much activity and i'm i'm not the sort of person like okay i could have been doing some like ab crunches or something but like what the hell is that going to help so i downloaded call of duty on my phone just played like call of duty three three or four weeks until i could uh start cycling with this massive like sandal thing on and use like my heel on the bike so after three weeks absolutely no training i went out these rides and oh my god i was destroyed you have something you sink your heel into so the pressure point is only on your heel is that what i'm understanding massive sort of like almost like one of those flippers you'd swim with but a bit shorter so like a lot of the weight isn't on that sort of like point under your big toe. A lot of it is on the heel and you're also not going to stub your toe that much. So I was out cycling with this thing, but every time I turned left, the wheel would come around and like hit my thing. So I'd have to be really carefully turning left. So I, I did that for um, three weeks and got my cycling like back up a bit because I'm not a cyclist and I don't find it that fun. And after that first ride, literally, my intercostal muscles ate so much. I was so tired. Mm. I think taking a week off training, completely fine. You can just fall back into it and sort of, yeah, absorb that sort of, like, rest you've had. But three weeks, just something happens to your body of, like, absolutely not even walking more than 100, 200 meters a day for three weeks and then trying to start exercising was, like, ridiculous. So I've slowly built up my cycling miles. At some point, I cut a big hole in my cycling shoe and move the cleat like really far back but drilling some extra holes so i could cycle with um a cleat and yeah like that was it cycling but then here there's some crazy nice roads and we had some good weather so i've been i've been cycling like a lot and then the running progression was also super strict for me so i um i went out for one minute running five minute walking by five or six for the first week and then the next week, two minute running, four minute walking by six and then three minute running and then sort of added on the minutes running and lowered the minutes uh, walking until this week was the first week where I could just try five minutes walking, 20 minutes running, five minutes walking. But all of that has been on like on the road in Hokers. Uh, there was one run when I ran next to a river on like a gravel sort of like big nice flat trail because this is i need to keep it sort of like flat and even so there's no sort of like tweaks and stuff and i felt like i was conquering the world i was like i was out in nature like oh my god <laughs> i'm away from civilization um but yeah since then i've managed to go on i can now hike and i can go and hike some mountains and do a bit of scrambling and stuff it's just it's just a continual like you need to stretch it and use it but not too much you need to find this sort of like happy happy medium and the big toe is getting stronger and stronger but i've still got so much weird other pain in the foot which is like really scary like is it like it's just like it's just horrible to be injured and then just know it's not getting that much better even when you've taken so much time off so i'm sure it just needs more time like i'm gonna try and get some insoles made up and see if i can fix um the other problems that way but it's just kind of like one of those things that take time how long have you been off of running for? How long did you take off in total? Uh, so I, I kind of stopped running last December. And then I did try and run through the winter because we had a quite bad snow during the actual winter. So I was trying to do some running. I was doing some really good 10% treadmill intervals, like just under zone four heart rate, getting so fast, feeling great in like January, uh, maybe February as well. 
uh, but I was still only running maybe like 30, 40K a week. And then um, come spring, I just got these other pains in the foot and just stopped running completely. So uh, um, I haven't really run like proper, proper for like a, a long, long time. But I mean, the physio said, he's like so amazed at me being a runner. How are you like not itching to get back to running? It's like, I'm not even, I don't even really think of myself as a runner anymore because I don't really run. Like it's not been that hard doing this progression because I can train on the bike and I can like go and do other stuff because the sports I'm training for doesn't necessarily mean I have to run. So it's not it's not been that bad, but it's like it's pretty scary when you, I still have problems in there, and it's like, is it going to get better? Is my like career over really? I, I didn't anticipate this being the gimpiest group of guys in a podcast. Though I, I'm out, so I have a stress fracture in my cuboid right now in my foot. Okay. Um, and so I've been out three and a half months. Bracken had two knee surgeries. You've had your sesamoid surgery. I will say one thing now. Uh, I've struggled with foot issues historically, chronic, you know, stuff gets fired up. I've had two metatarsal stress fractures, my sesamoid stress fractures, now cuboid stress fractures. Cool. The, compensa the compensation issue that starts to happen, like when you just start favoring the way your foot plants or the way you, like, I would just, I mean, I would tread lightly on, like, you're being very smart listening to it. That referred ghost pain is like, you may have it for a year and a half, even after surgery, and it may be non-threatening or it may all i know is like the like the back and forth of recovering from foot injuries when you're on your feet all the time anyways it's like very cloudy so like you're probably feeling how you should uh I, if you find any comfort in that through my multi-stress fractures in my foot the biggest comfort i have now is if i self-massage the foot it feels better afterwards so that's like uh possibly then it's just all soft tissue crap which i'm <laughs> here you can't massage a fracture. Yeah, if it's like nerves which have like thickened and like stress fractures which aren't fixed and stuff, it's like, uh, I, I don't know if I can take like another freaking three months and another call of duty and like another build up. But like maybe like I've also got the ski season coming, so I can pretty much just stop running again and just ski and get really big cardio gains on the skis. So I've got like a lot of time. It's just I don't know if I can do like a whole other operation again. It's just it's big. Yeah. It's been a while, like, but I don't, I, I'm not even sure I'd have this injury if I wasn't trying to be good at one sport. Like, I'd really think that training just whole round is like so much healthier. Like, if your legs hurt, don't go running, go and cycle or swim or do something else. And then you have to find a sport which rewards this sort of fitness, which is obstacle racing. Like any other sport you have to train so specifically for is not fun and it screws you up. So I'm really glad that I have obstacle racing and, I, and over the years I've managed to stay mainly injury free because of the, the fact that the sport I'm training for doesn't require me to be so repetitive. I'm getting the sense that you, and I know you coach, you run your own endurance coaching um, business and you obviously self-coach throughout this for the most part. I'm sure you drew from other people, but I'm getting the sense that you are a high volume athlete, very high volume in terms of all encompassing activities, but that you don't necessarily prioritize high volume of running. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Like I love to train, so I'm out training a lot. Uh, one of the biggest challenges when you coach other people is the fact they don't have as much time and then also work stress, family stress, plus training stress equals a certain amount of stress and you need to keep that beneath tipping point. And it's so hard to do 
for people that like can't just lay on the couch all day if they've got key intervals that evening. So it's like it's pretty hard to perfect how to train properly when you only have a small amount of time to do it. Um, but it's something that I really think like the system I've got really works really well, and it's obviously worked really well for me. But what's been great is the fact that my wife is helping me on the training. And she's super into reading books and listening to podcasts and following what really top athletes do. She's like learning all the science side of stuff, so then telling it to me so I can change my own training. But then she's kind of yeah tying up the dots to find out what I've done and why it's worked and this and that. So I've got kind of like a sounding board and it's actually the two of us doing it together almost. Like it's my ethos and me doing the work, but she's there sort of quality control and to try and fit it around people's lives as well because she had up until this year, a full-time job, trying to train, trying to trying to go to work and still recover. If you live that other side of thing, I haven't lived that life for five years now. So uh, the fact that it's two of us has really, like, improved the quality of what we could put together. And also she's super smart for, like, the systems, like accounting, finding the training platform we use and setting up, like, yeah, Zoom and all that sort of stuff. Like she's helped a lot with that as well. So the two of us as a team, I think have put together um, a better product than I think most people would expect from someone like me, who's just like a, a running bum. Without giving away all the secrets then, what are your principles of training? How do you incorporate everything? What do you find works for you and for others? Uh, well, starting from like the highest level is like how you uh, program the whole year. The first thing I found out is everyone thinks you have to train like Rocky Balboa all the time. And it's like on, 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 on. And I know I've, I've been like that a lot. And it just, after six, seven weeks, you just start getting injured. You start getting less motivation and you just like, you don't improve. So the first thing to try and like actually <clears throat> make the year like, yeah, section it up so you can try and train and peak at the right time and also not lose motivation. And that means also reducing the intensity of the intervals and then in which case lengthening the intervals. So um, a big thing is to do a lot more slightly easier, like happy hard intervals, but make them a lot longer. And then you only really need like six to eight weeks of really rocky Balboa crap before a race to get like really good shape. As long as you built this sort of like big cardio base first, so um, that's like a big part of it is, um, yeah, trying to have these like types of training for, for the year because um, motivation is like a, bit, a big thing for people. And I know it's really hard to motivate, motivate yourself to go and train if you know it's going to be absolutely disgusting. Mm -hmm. We're big believers in polarized training, Kirk and I. How, how do you structure yours in terms of balancing your your easy aerobic work versus your more quality work? Yeah, um, well, like, it's really tough because I kind of know that, like, as long as you get stuff done and you don't overtrain, you don't injure yourself, the performance gains are relatively small. But, like, it certainly is true that, like, easy training should be, like, really easy. And if you start from a really easy work rate, your speed will increase. Whereas if you go on like a, a semi-easy work rate, your your speed won't really improve. So like there was a time, especially last year when I was training towards the Trail World Champs, that I always knew my sort of like heart rate zone one is like under 140 beats. But I started going out and doing these cycle climbs, like um, 
600, 700 meters of cycle climbing at like 120 beats. And suddenly I was like, crap, my time improved on this hill by like five to 10 minutes, but my heart rate is still 120. Whereas if I've gone out every day at 140, I probably wouldn't have got that improve, improvement in the time. And also just the next day, I'm still quite tired. So I really found that easy does have to be easy, but that doesn't mean that you always have to go out and run hard, really, really hard the whole year. Like for the majority of the year, it's kind of like you can do between eight and 20 minute intervals kind of um, and do a few of them to like an hour, or an hour and 30 of like proper work, but not go into sort of like zone four, like really hard borrow time. And then that way you don't dread intervals. You're more likely to do more of them in a week and you're more likely to do it for three, four, five months in a row. Whereas if you make someone do some really hard intervals, like after like three weeks, they're like, oh, I'm kind of done and lose motivation or they're just injured. So trying to get like the work rate right is certainly like a really, a really big thing. Um, but then also like training for that's like generally trying to train to be a runner which in my mind, obstacle racing, the first thing you need to be is a good runner. But it's amazing how many people are like, they love strength training. So strength training is the majority of their training, but it's like just trying to like sort of like, well, if you want to be good at this, it's better to concentrate on this and work on your weaknesses and stuff. But it's certainly hard with obstacle racing because no one really knows the best way of training for it. Um, it's like, it's a random thing. Uh, so it's, it's, there's certainly a lot of like little tricks and stuff which I've learned which I can give to people but at the end of the day it's like it's such a random sport to train for and there's lots of different ways of doing it. Do you have rhyme or reason to your cross training right now? You talk about you know not wanting to do too much hard interval work to burn yourself out. I think I think a lot of people, you know, are, are cycling through injury and trying to figure out what to do with themselves in the meantime and periodizing even their cardio fitness while injured. Are you a guy right now who's simply getting time in or do you have purpose to your workouts while injured? I'm, I, I've got purpose to my workouts, but I'm not like following a set training plan. But I've never really been someone that's had set goals that I've trained for. I've just been really fit. And normally if I've got races to train for, it's not just one, it's like three months worth of racing. So I've never really specifically trained for one specific thing. But at the moment, like I do just think like, oh, I haven't done any harder intervals for a while. So maybe I'll do like six by eight minutes or, oh, maybe like I could do something really long today and easy and kind of like I am uh, switching up my intensities because like unless you do that, you don't really improve and then if I improve now hopefully that's just gonna I can build on that through to through to next year but that definitely is something one of the biggest mistakes most people make is going out and doing the same intensity all the time uh, and I do think it's fun to go out and do intervals and go fast on the bike and stuff it's just now I can make it a bit more random like if I'm gonna do uh, some cycling intervals I can just go and find a really nice big big hill and go and cycle up it on these like nice switchbacks and stuff rather than being so scientific about sort of like how much time I can just be a bit more a bit more random but I've always been a bit like that anyway yeah I was just curious because uh, that's been a hot topic for I don't know Bracken and I anyways as we've been kind of navigating injury um I want to move on to um I have a list here from your website of your accomplishments John did a little creeping on you. And I just want the people to understand all the uh, all the world championships you have. And then I have a follow-up question, okay? Yeah. 
like first thing you have to is like you have to define what classifies as the world championships because there's a lot of races which are just putting up their hands and be like i'm a world <laughs> well well i imagine the ones that you listed on your website are legit we will say <laughs> so so john we got OCR world champion in some capacity, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, right? Uh, yeah. You were, you were first at Spartan Worlds 2014 and 2018. You were first at the Trail World Champs last year in 2019. First in the Ultra Sky Running World Champs in 2018. First overall Skyrunner World Series champ in 2017. Am I mistaken with any of those? No, no, that's like pretty good um <laughs> that's pretty good yeah it's like uh, the skyrim world series stuff when i got into that it was like three world series so it was slightly easier to win those because there was like certain categories spawn worlds like it's it's just spawn racing ocr worlds is just a brand which puts up their hand and says i'm a world championships uh skyrunning uh world champs yeah but it was ultra distance it's not like the most competitive one you keep playing these down. Yeah, but then like uh, Trail World Champs, like the Itcher Trail World Champs was one where I was actually probably like, wow, like this is like a proper World Champs. I'm wearing Great Britain clothing. I'm here. They paid for my flights to come out by my country and I'm racing other people. But then with, with most of this trail running and mountain running, there's so many different factions. You're not going to be racing all the best people at the same time in any race. And like... There's a bunch of people which I know which are really, really fast and they weren't there. So even that you can – if you, if you follow this trail of thought, you can pretty much, like, say that no one's ever won anything. So um, but the Trail World Champs was a pretty cool one to win last year. Um, and I was, like – I was just really proud of myself that I actually trained towards that race. It's one of the only races I've really actually trained towards it. And I tried some different things and I actually came up with my ethos – and I followed it through, and I managed to have the best form on that day, and then also push out a good race, which is like trying to get all those things to co-align is, is pretty tough. And then it's not like a race where you just start and you eke out the effort as you go. It's kind of a bit random with technical sections, and you've got to eat, and you've got to do pit, pit crewing type stuff. So like to have everything go so well and have good form, I was pretty like. Now, was that a 62 or 72K? What was that one? 46k they alternate years correct yeah i don't don't know like and now mountain running world champs is going to merge with trail running world champs uh next year so it's going to be like a totally different thing so what i've won probably won't even exist anymore anyway um but like yeah that was that was a cool one to win but even like team us like half the people weren't even there like alex nichols like didn't have a passport or something so couldn't even get on a plane like there's a there's always a bunch of like Killian doesn't doesn't want to race for like Spain, kind of because yeah, it's there's like a bunch of people which are really good which weren't there, so so it's always going to be that way with with races. But the Trail World Champs, like I was pretty proud mainly because I just felt like I had good form, like I I yeah did did well. Like I I normally race so much I can never keep really good shape all the way through to the end of the year. And this race was in the beginning of the year, and I managed to get good shape and cross the race. So I was happy, but there's no way I had the same shape at the end of the year as I did at the beginning uh, with all the racing I'd Is that your proudest win uh, to date? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Um, yeah, like it was, a, it was a good one. It was fun. 
you seem like a guy who um who I you you've da- you I guess you put your hand in a lot of cookie jars with like sky running, trail running, OCR. Uh, you obviously have quite the you know resume already. Do you have some like things we don't know about that excite you that you would like to work towards? Uh, I don't know. Like the, so, the foot thing is always maybe not want to run more than really like. 50k unless it's like a special occasion like world stuff is mother is like a special occasion end of the year then i can take off season that's fine and i've done other stuff which is quite long but the foot thing has always made me not want to run that far so obviously there's big long races which would be pretty cool to do and ones i think i could do well at something like utmb would be pretty fun mm-hmm. it's just then mm-hmm. i've got to like qualify and they're their own faction i've got to do some races to qualify for utmb and that means not doing other races um and then also putting all your eggs in that one basket if i wake up and i've got food poisoning it's kind of like it's done isn't it so it's kind of like there is probably some stuff out there but i've never really picked races like normally with races like especially Spartan worlds they invited me to come they said we'll pay for your flights like come you've you've won all the stuff in the uk we want to see you race in the states so i went same with ocr worlds yeah you won Spartan worlds come out, do our race. And I've always been like invited to these things. I've never actually really physically had goals that I've really wanted to do. It's just kind of like opportunities have arisen and I've said yes. So it'll, there'll be like a, a form of that, I'm sure, moving forwards. And if nothing arises, maybe I'd have to start pushing something and actually sit down and think what I want to achieve with my life. What, what are you best at? Oh, why am I best at like, like as in if, if all if everyone in the world who's good at every sport showed up to the championships what's your best version is it sky running mountain running trail running obstacle racing i probably in comparison to the other athletes obstacle racing because it's such a new undeveloped field of athletes really and there's so many different people from different backgrounds and stuff so like i'm definitely nowhere near as fast a climber or uh, running up uphill with some of the guys, but then also like I'm not quite like skinny enough, so I've got a lot more weaknesses in other more sort of like sports where you can train really specifically for them. But when you chuck all this random crap into one race, I seem to be pretty good. So I would have thought obstacle racing is what I excel at the most. Okay, um, I'm definitely nowhere near near as good just running uphill as I should be in order to really hang with the best people, especially at altitude. And it's funny that I've gone into sky running because if any sports can be held at altitude, it'll be, it'll be sky running. Is that a, is that just an engine thing? Is it a weight thing? What do you, could you change it or is it just not worth trying to change? I I never really felt like I've managed to acclimatize because I've got so much racing to do and I'm already so burnt out by the time I get to these races anyway. It's pretty tough. Uh, so maybe to acclimatize would be good, but then I live in Norway at sea level. And actually in Norway, it's not even allowed to use altitude chambers. Uh, it's the only country in the world that don't allow their athletes to use altitude chambers. It's really? a, a form of doping. Uh, but I don't know if I live in a tent anyway. Like, I don't warm and moist and stuff. Um, but I think there's just something about my running which makes me good and powerful and it just doesn't work at altitude for some reason i don't know like maybe i run with like quite a high effort level and make it work somehow but then when i go up to altitude it's just i i haven't got that sort of like 
oomph. And maybe with my changing training over the last years of doing more like zone three intervals and getting faster with a lower effort level, maybe that will help now moving forwards so that then I can sort of handle the higher effort level when I get to altitude. But I don't know, just something that just doesn't doesn't click for me when I'm at altitude. Did you ever consider moving to altitude? Or do you love Norway too much? I love I love Norway. Like the mountains here to run in, the freedom, not getting uh, someone point a shotgun at you if you run across their garden and stuff. It's like it's a really nice place to live. Um, I don't think I'd switch it out to live up a mountain anytime soon, to be honest. Um, I could like I just pick one race and then try to go there a month before. But I know people, it might have been you that said, I moved to altitude and like my five K time was like destroyed for the next two years or something and it's like yeah it, I, I might move somewhere but it might not even help that much so yeah i certainly got better at altitude but <laughs> i got it was different yeah i was a different runner at altitude i wasn't as fast i had i could stay better mm. i know it's like it's, it's a it's a really tough thing but really with a lot of races i know i say i don't choose which races i do but if i have to normally i choose the ones that aren't altitude so I pick ones which are like on islands and stuff because that I know they're going to be quite close. The the bad one was last year when I tr I decided to do Transvolcania and I went there and then like started running. I, I didn't know it goes up to two and a half thousand meters, then kind of stays there for like fifty k. I was like, oh shit! <laughs> it's just one of those things. But it's like I don't want to say it's an excuse. It's just one of my weaknesses. I just hate running altitude. It's just not fun. I just don't feel powerful. I feel like a ten-year-old girl with asthma. Like <laughs> that's I, you're not alone. You're not alone there. That's exactly how it's felt. I took two weeks before Tahoe this year. Um, two weeks is clearly not enough to acclimate, but it was enough where I was in control of my effort for the first time at elevation in the four years I've been in this sport. I I, I wasn't just hanging on for dear life, but it took me all bit of that two weeks to even feel somewhat normal on a run that's for sure but everything from like you arrived like 24 hours before to five days yeah. before but the most i've done was last year and it was like a week or 10 days before i got there but then then like a whole day just a whole week just mooching around it just wasn't like yeah because you're not really the what i've done a lot of is i've turned up wow crazy cool mountains let's go running every single day at altitude and then come race day i'm like destroyed I felt like I hit my my low like one like one like seven to ten days in is where I hit like yeah. I was in the dirt and then my body came around the last few days before the race. I definitely don't think I've ever acclimatized properly for elevation, but what you can do is at least if you get there a week before, you can like get your like drinking and like that dry throat feeling under control and maybe sleep a little bit better because you don't have such weird dreams and stuff and yeah okay your blood levels might not be up to where they need to be but you can kind of like acclimatize to like the air pressure or like the moisture in the air and everything else that's different when you turn up in some new mountains but, i mean you all remember as well i sat on like a plane for like 20 hours to get there as well and like my time zone is completely screwed up so just generally racing in the states it's like it's not like that fun and then to hear i've had people say to me the reason you do well at Spartan Worlds is because that's the only race you do in the year. You don't do it. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> Those people don't have any idea what you're doing. It's like you have different energy systems and one's just for Spartan. Well, you haven't done one Spartan, <laughs> so you're totally fresh. The, the craziest one was the million dollar type year. I race so much. And some of the stuff people wouldn't even know exists, like, 
uh, the weekend after OCR World Champs, I did um, the OM, which is like a two-day orienteering uh, mountain race where you run with a buddy, you map breed, you run like 45 to 50K the first day, not on trails or anything, just on really fucked up terrain, carrying your tent and food and stuff. Then you get to the end, you set your tent up, you eat your food, you sleep, uh, and then the next day wake up and do it all over again, and you run like 35 to 45K the next day, still navigating on screwed up terrain. I did that the weekend after OCR World Champs, having run 15K and 5K. And then the next weekend after that was the Spartan Trifecta weekend. So those three week weekends in a row was like disgusting, really. Uh, but then the three weekends before that, I had been uh, at the Sky Running Ultra World Champs. The next weekend flew and did the Tough Mudder World Champs. Then the next weekend after that was Tahoe. So I'd done like, even just in these like, Incredible. So actually, maybe seven weeks. I think I had one week off in between. I did like that much racing, and then it was the whole. You're not qualified to do Greece. So I had to go to the UK to qualify. So I did two races in the UK. Qualified for Greece. Went and did Greece and won that. Uh, but then I wasn't qualified for the ultra in Iceland, so I had to go to um, I go some place to like some jungle place and like oh, yeah. ran in some jungle for like fifty. So I could qualify for uh, Iceland and then arrived in Iceland the next weekend after Malaysia. And, and everyone was like, oh, John's going to run 100 miles. Like, oh, my God. How John, is John even alive? Because I've done a whole sky running freaking season in, during the summer. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. And then people were like, ah, oh, he just did Spartan Worlds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So I, I've competed overseas a few times. I am a mess for the first two to three days I'm there flying overseas into a different time zone. And then I can maybe perform on day three or four, maybe. And then flying home, I'm a mess for another week. Yeah. You, you did that twice. It's, it's, it's people forget the stress of travel. Yeah. To go to Malaysia is like, I don't even remember like how long the flight was. I went there for like two days. And then came back again and then was going to Iceland on the Wednesday. It's like all these races I just described are all in different countries except for the OCR Worlds and the OM uh, was in the same. But then I spent a week actually in between with Ryan and Lindsay in the Lake District just running around having fun. So that was that was nice. But it's like it's pretty screwed up like how much racing I did that year. But then it just shows that I would never have ever had – full great form in any one of those races it was always just going to be sort of like 80 percent of my potential and then that's where trail world champs was different i really felt like i got like up to 95 percent kind of of what i could do at that time on that day so uh it was nice to actually have a race in my life where i thought maybe i actually had pretty good good form are you ever going to change that your your schedule? I mean, granted, you get healthy and things feel good, and racing resumes. Like that's kind of digging your own grave a little bit. So what what's your plan there? Yeah, I don't know. Like now we live in such a nice place. There's so much to explore here. Like there's so many mountains and so many cool ridges to scramble and so much to do here. Uh, but then I have to make a living, and I love racing. And I love proving that I can run good and stuff. So it just really depends on how many people invite me to come and race really and what I feel like I need to do to prove that I'm like good. Um, so we'll see. Like I think it's going to be less in the future. Like some years it's just been a bit ridiculous. Like I've raced like far too much. Um, 
but we'll just just see what comes of like how much running I can do. We'll see. Has has that been hard this year with with races being shut down and the injury and all that? Like making a living is that something you've had to worry about or is without racing? Because I mean, I I have a a full time job as a personal trainer, Bracken. You've had your coaching business for a long time. Um, so like racing I do is pure joy, right? I don't have to worry about the financial end of it. I don't have to worry about sponsorships. I'm going to be fine because of my, my nine to five, so to speak. Has that been a stressor for you? Because you're probably, gosh, the, one of the first like full full-time athletes we've really chatted with that, you know, this has really impacted like financially. Has that been tough? Yeah, I think like, uh, what added to the, uh, stress was the fact that my wife quit her job so she could have more time to train and like live a bit of a lifestyle. So I've lost a bit of a stable income there, but then we have started up the coaching, uh, side of things together and it's really fun to help people. Obviously with all the races being canceled, there's less people that are motivated to really try and get good form, but we've got some really good clients and it's really fun to follow with and they pay us. So that's like always a, good thing as well we've got, like, we've got the coaching uh kind of like bubbling away there it's never gonna at the moment at least it's not gonna sort of like really mean we can live like this forever but at, at present all my sponsors have been super good and they've said yeah like they've still give me some sponsor money for the year so that's nice um and then also living in norway they've got great systems in place for when you do hit hard times so I have the coaching and I have the racing side of things. And because I can't race, because we can't travel, I'm kind of like, um, yeah, like unable to make income. And I've been paying tax for the last five, six years. So Norway give me some money, sort of like job seekers money. So that helps. And then also with the operation, I couldn't even run for six weeks. So I was on sick pay, which is paid by the government for six weeks. So there's sort of systems in place to help people um, which do make a legitimate living, but then fall on hard times. And I would have uh, assumed that there's a lot of people using those sort of systems now. And um, I'm one of them. It just, that all that kind of ends at some point. So it really just, we have to look at what next year looks like and how we move forwards. I've got some great ideas about like what I'd like to do with my life. But I don't think I'd go back to what I studied in uh, college. I'd probably like, either restudy in something sort of like exercise-y, uh, try and make the coaching thing work, or just hopefully like I'd be happy just getting a simple job three days a week and having a simple lifestyle and then enjoying myself in the mountains for the, the rest of the time. So we'll just see how, how it pans out next year. I can't argue with that at all. <laughs> that sounds good to me. So I want the last thing I wanted to dive into with you, John, um, because, and I know Bracken wants to go this direction too, is I do want to dive a little bit more into your, like, uh, we talked a little bit about your training philosophy, but um, what I don't understand still about your development in sport is uh, who coached you? Where did you learn your knowledge? How did you begin that process? Um, and, and like, I don't know, like if you had to like describe your general philosophy, like, what does that look like? Uh, I've never had a coach, so that's like an easy one to answer. I've just kind of like, um, felt what works and done what's enjoyable. And then also, I guess I've used events a lot in order to get good. Like my wife introduced me to orienteering. Orienteering is like a great way to learn how to run in technical terrain because you have to run in like forest and stuff, reading a map while there's like roots and leaves and crap everywhere 
So like I've used stuff like this and like different sports in order to make myself better. So like enjoying climbing, I've gone climbing a lot. And then it's like when you climb a lot, you kind of get better. It was really when I became a full-time athlete and started like doing too much of this sort of stuff because it's so fun that I had to start actually trying to make an ethos. Um, and that's where Henrietta's, my wife has like really helped because she's like connected the dots between like the clients and the research and what other professional athletes do and then worked out why what I've done in certain ways has resulted in me being good. So then we can formulate my own, my own ethos. But I've never actually had a, a coach and I'm not even sure how someone would coach me because literally like, oh, it's really sunny today. I'm going to go <laughs> really far. <laughs> Whereas like it might be on the agenda to do something completely different. So I do think you have to listen to your body a lot when you're um, training and you have to have like a general ethos. But you can be very relaxed uh, within that kind of ethos. It's just I found that that's really worked for me. But for other people uh, who have got, like, work and family, they need structure and they need someone to tell them uh, what is the bare minimum they can do in the time they have to get good. And it's great that I've seen that what I've worked out has really worked for me. Scaled down and changed slightly and stuff is really working for other people as well. Well, I just think, like, with your success – and still starting, like it sounds like you almost just were like a prodigy in a sense where you had won almost everything that you had entered. I mean, did you know how to implement like a threshold run or why do I do 400 meter repeats here? When do I implement hard hill work versus recovering? Like those things aren't inherent. Like those need to be learned through trial and error. You Did you study anybody's work? Did you, did you just go out and wing it and learn through trial and error yeah so i never really did any of that stuff back in the day when i was training uh because i had a job um i i like i didn't really know that like i knew people did do repeats and stuff but for me i when i was in london i was really training and getting like the base fitness i have now when i really realized i'm training for obstacle racing and mountain running and i just I wasn't even really training for anything. I just really liked being tired. And if I was tired, I wasn't wasting my life because I can't do anything because I'm tired. So it was like <laughs> I just keep myself in a perpetual state of tiredness until my body adapted so I wasn't tired anymore. Um, so I, I would commute to work and I moved around London a bit. So my commute changed lengths. So that was great. So actually at one point I decided to move further away from work so I'd have a longer commute. Uh, so that was like one key thing. So I was getting some base miles in, I guess, going to and from work. But then the, the actual hard training I did, I, I signed up to this thing called British Military Fitness. And it's like an exercise class where like an ex-military guy makes you like do some sprints and do some press ups and like do some stuff with whoever else is there and do some random body weight stuff and run around this park. And it was like I would try really hard, like from hockey, I was the worker. So I'd be pushing like really hard. And that was my kind of like intervals, I guess, with all this like, like some of the jump squats and burpees we'd do, we'd build so much lactic acid in our legs, but then like sprint it off and it would always be random and different. So I think that like had a big role to play because I'd be like unable to walk for like two, three days afterwards. So then I'd just do more things like cycling and running to work and stuff. So I wasn't really ever trying to get good it was just happening because i enjoyed doing the training um 
like I say, when I became a full-time athlete, that's when I had to start planning circle routes and finishing at the same place. And it was like a really new concept to me because normally I just go to work or home again. Um, like I'd, I'd literally uh, cycle to work and then that evening run 10K, do this hour fitness thing, run to the shop, buy a bunch of shopping and two carry bags, run 5K with the carry bags, get home, uh, eat, sleep. The next day, I haven't got a bike. I run to work. I think it was like 17K total to work. Uh, work, my bike's at work, cycle home. So that was kind of a maybe stop by climbing on the on the way or something. That was kind of like my cycle and I just do stuff like that. Um, but then that's not possible. If you have six to seven hours of every single day to train, you can't train like that because when I turned up in Norway, now I've got all the time to train in the world. I'd started CrossFit. So I tried to do CrossFit workouts and it's like five or six, as hard as you can go, really disgusting workouts and then i'd try and do like long runs and intervals with like the local like mountain runners and stuff as well and go climbing and stuff i absolutely like destroyed myself um that's when i started thinking like i need to make my ethos and my parameters for how i get fit without destroying myself and it's only been at the trail world champs where i really actually perfected it to be honest it's been like a long a long process I always knew, you know, you had some sort of OCR training before you knew it was OCR training. I just didn't know it was running home with groceries <laughs> as your first as your first scary workout. Well, it's, it's kind of scary news for the rest of the world that mm -hmm. you know we see from the outside this John Albin. He's he shows up everywhere and he's always fit and he always wins. And then you see behind the curtain, you realize he's showing up overtrained battling foot stress fractures, maybe 80% capacity for things. And he just nailed it last spring for the first time. So assuming return to fitness and health, this could be really the second half of your career could be the highlight. I guess so. But I mean, the, the key thing is, which I still haven't cracked, is how to have like a double peak or really good form for three months. Like, okay, you can get really great form once in May, but then if you want to win Spartan World Champs as well in like October or something, it's like, how the hell? So it's that bit in between. It's really hard to take a month to do base building again and then some more sharpening and then taper into a race when you've got like six other races. Literally, I've got like a race at least every two weeks and some of them being like six, seven hours. So it's how to keep that good form and whether it's possible, who knows? But um, that's like the, the key to it, isn't it? Because Spartan World's, it's probably going to be back in the US and it's probably going to be later on in the year. And who knows if it's going to be at elevation. So it's always going to be a tough one to crack. But uh, with, with actual training, I think the biggest philosophy was just enjoyment. So if you enjoy something, you'll do it more and you'll go out. If you enjoy 1,000 meter repeats, that's great. And it's really fun to like follow with the times and see your improvement and stuff. But at some point, it might not be that fun. Whereas if you can make running interesting and fun, you'll do it more and you'll get better. So I like to like run somewhere and get the train home or like going to and from work. So that's obviously something you have to do. Do it with friends, take up like orienteering or go and find a new trail, like plan a new watch uh, route on your watch or something. Doing stuff like that has really been the key to like success because that means you're going to be training for like two, three years in a row rather than doing this train towards an event and stop for two months and train towards an event. And then you don't really get anywhere unless you can string together a lot of good quality uh, months. And then 
for the actual racing, my dad always just said, I don't, I don't really win with maybe the best form or like the most natural talent maybe, but he said like, I, I win with heart. So I'm always just trying my hardest and I'm always expecting the fact that I should be able to do better. And I'm always just giving it absolutely everything. And especially with obstacle racing, that goes a long way. Because at some point, uh, you're getting hit in the face with this baseball bat and you just have to keep going. You just have to keep pushing and you just have to not sort of like give up or assume that you can't do it. You just have to keep giving it everything. And I think I've done that in pretty much all the racing I've done. Uh, and that's something that I never want to lose because I think, yeah, you can train so scientifically and you can be the best trained person ever, but you need this sort of like, heart when you race to really get it out and push and, and and do well do you do something specific in training that gets you ready for nasty mental outputs or is that something that's innate over years for you uh i think not being overtrained is a really good one so i can often if i'm like overtrained i go to maybe a masseuse and i can't even take the pain it makes me feel sick like i don't want to or like the thought of like a cold shower is like oh no because i am literally i just haven't got anything left in me uh because i'm doing too much so that's like the the biggest one but then um yeah just not being overtrained to so being like fresh and happy just as long as you're happy you're probably going to race quite well uh and you don't want to train that out of you by doing too much it's just starting the process of training early enough that you can be relaxed all the way what i normally do is like just I've got a race in two weeks' time. I've got a cram, 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 try and rest, and then another race, cram, cram, cram. Whereas to have, like, a system and know if I train like this now, I can train like this then, and then I'll have much better form later on. And that was a long time to learn that process and how to do it. And then also push hard enough when you're meant to. Because in that sort of eight-week period before that really big race, you have to push really hard when you've spent two or three months doing like these like kind of pussy pussy intervals uh, and then actually trying to push hard enough so you can learn to deal with that lactic acid. Um, but last year I did uh, start doing a different type of session, which I got from this uphill athlete book, um, which I know mm -hmm. Ian does. And it's like this 30, 30 training where you go out and you do intervals and you run really hard and then kind of race pace and really hard then race pace at 30 second intervals just continually um and i found that training really really helps because it really can kick start the process of your body learning to deal with the lactic acid uh but you don't need that much of it for it to be effective so that sort of like interval session in uh, the last few weeks before a big race having done this big base building phase already was like a really key thing and like really improved my racing because I often find like especially when I'm running uphill when the, the gradient just kicks up a little bit I'm not the sort of person which slows down I'm like oh I'm starting to feel tight I should push harder and my body you go kind of into the red a little bit and then your body doesn't really recover whereas in training if you do this 30 30 you continue push yourself into the red then come down at race pace and still maintain a good speed then push yourself into the red again your body kind of learns to deal with that sort of like racing type situation, especially with obstacle racing, because every time you hit an obstacle, your heart rate jacks anyway, or a carry. So that sort of um, interval session has really been quite key, especially last year. Nice. You, you walked me into my last curiosity, and that was um, I, I still look at you as a performer. Um, your performances in Tahoe have been nothing short of astounding, considering coming from sea level. 
traveling overseas at the same time. Um, so I have to imagine, and then all your racing and, and all your world champs that you have some sort of like dialing in within weeks of a race somewhat figured out. I know it's always a work in progress. Do you have any like go-to, you don't have to share the specifics if you don't want, but any go-to workouts so you know, like when you're ready to get primed and you got a, a, a race that you care about a week or two out, do you generally go to? Uh, I mean, the only time I've really had one race that I'm trying to be good at was Trail World Champs, and I know what I did then. But through the years, I have had kind of like an ethos. And usually it goes along the lines of trying not to be too fresh because I'm always kind of a bit overtrained kind of normally. That's how my body performs. And then suddenly if you're really fresh and you've done absolutely nothing, you feel like a, a vegetable on the start line, it just never goes that good because your heart rate, I think, goes way higher and you can give a lot more effort in the first k or 2k and then you just screw up the rest of the race so i've really tried to go towards more like if you are going to taper have a rest a week and then the week before the race try and have a bit more load and reintroduce some harder running so you can put some stiffness back in your legs and not feel too fresh come to the race day but then when you've got a race coming up it's always really hard to go out and do some intervals um because it just doesn't sound like that like it doesn't sound smart so i fall into the the system of like doing more like progressive runs because i often find when i do intervals i don't run like i am going to in the race like you kind of end up sprinting the interval and just using your heart rate and your capacity to run that far rather than running naturally whereas if you do a progressive run you just slowly get faster and you run with the same technique and you run naturally fast rather than just kind of cheating the system so progressive runs i'm a big fan of and then also just the full hard way of just taking a really hard interval session you've done in your sharpening phase in the sort of six to eight weeks before the race and then just doing like the same intensity and just do less reps so say if you've done like uh with these 30 30s i've worked my way up to like two by 15 minutes or something like that or three by 10 minutes and then uh, at the beginning of the sharpening phase, I'd say do like uh, two by four minutes with some other stuff on either side, then just drop back to that in the tapering. So it's kind of like I've pushed myself up in a progression to a certain level of um, interval and then just drop it back to the start point. So I finish the interval and just feel fresh and ready to run more, but I don't. So I kind of generate like a hungry feeling rather than just running fast enough like normally if you shorten the interval you just end up running harder was really trying to control that work rate so you run at the same work rate you have done you just stop early kind of uh, it's more about just trying to generate these feelings for how you want to feel when you go into the race and making sure you're happy making sure you're hungry and not overtrained, and making sure you don't feel like a vegetable and over like just overrested. I go by the same philosophy. I'm a fan. I call it the reverse taper, but the, the two the two weeks off before, like take it light and then go back into normal training. I don't do well. I noticed that maybe you, you kind of described it, but heart rate will spike a little more than typical if I'm too fresh and I'll go out feeling a little too crisp. And then it usually catches up with me on the backside and it, it's a net loss. So I'd rather go in with a little tension on the legs too. With obstacle racing, because the start is always absolutely insane anyway. And being like elevation even more so and then you hit an obstacle and you jack yourself even more i often think like if you start the race and you can look around and smile and take in like a sight 
you're not going too fast. That's something like I try and do because it's so easy in old school race to be super stiff, super trying hard. And then if you do t- 10 minutes, say like at a too hard effort, you'll be like 10% slower throughout the entire race. So trying to make sure that that's not going to be a possibility with how fresh you are and then also just trying to control the effort right at the beginning of the race. That's, that's, I think it's something everyone needs to hear. People like to get out too hard and sometimes overthink things. Yeah, it is, it is really hard to be that person that's gaining throughout the entire race and then keep motivated to keep pushing, whereas maybe that's where that running with heart thing comes into play because it's, it's often pretty good to get out front and then you're winning, you're on a high because you're winning, whereas to know that you keep pushing as hard as you can, drag yourself under that bar door, jump into the cold water as fast as possible, and you're coming fifth, is that pretty pretty tough yeah it is well john i appreciate you taking some time with us today it was good to see kind of behind the the scenes of what it's taken to become where you're at and where you're going from here so thanks for sharing your injury updates and we're looking forward to to your comeback trail it's been a lot of fun like um podcasts are always kind of tough like some podcasts like people are really good at getting information out of the person and other podcasts are just the people like talking themselves so this was uh this was really fun and it was good We're glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks, John. Cheers, guys.